Welcome to Canine Hijinks, the podcast for those who want to explore more ways to have fun with their dogs and perhaps discover the wider world of training and dog sports. It may even convert the casual pet owner into a dog sport enthusiast. Join me, Alyssa Looney. And me, Whitney Taylor, as we share our dog training journeys, as well as resources you can use to enhance your life with your canine friends. Welcome to Canine Hijinks. We've reached episode eight and are excited to have another guest with us today. That's right. Daisy Peel is joining us from Oregon. Before we introduce her, though, Alyssa and Daisy, what fun things have you been doing lately with your dogs? I taught, well, I'm in the process of teaching the puppy how to hold things and hold still at the same time. The holding still part is really the challenge. And uh, (laughs) we're starting to get that this week. So that's been fun. I have been working on some trick training with Chispa and with Keith, I've been working on some of the basic, uh, revisiting some basic jump training stuff, and then also um, playing around with some of the UKI and USDA at home stuff. So you've been busy with your dogs. Been pretty busy. (laughs) That's awesome. So Daisy Peel is known worldwide as a leading instructor and competitor in the sport of dog agility. She's represented the USA internationally over a dozen times across three continents and with four different dogs. She is a formally trained teacher with a degree in science and math education and was a high school chemistry teacher for nearly a decade before becoming a full-time agility coach and instructor. Daisy's students have excelled at the top levels of AKC, USDAA, AAC, which is in Canada, and UKI, and have themselves been selected to represent their countries at international events. Daisy's thinking that advanced handling is merely more precise application of the fundamentals means that she is dedicated to the, to the improvement of handlers at all levels, regardless of their current level or goals and aspirations. Daisy teaches students of all ages and stages around the globe in person and through her online classes and is dedicated to helping people further their self-improvement through better training, better handling, and better mastery of their mental game. Welcome, Daisy. (laughs) Thank you. So Daisy, you started in agility with the specific of intentions to compete at a high level. And so I'm looking forward to hearing about how that progressed into also becoming your profession. But before we get too far into that, can you tell us what dogs you currently have in your household? I currently have five Border Collies and one cat. See, she has more than me, Whitney. (laughs) I only have four. She makes me feel better about my dog count. So Daisy, will you tell us a little bit about how you got started in agility and the the dogs that you ran sort of at the beginning of your career? Sure. I didn't I'm not sure that I got started in agility with the specific intention of competing at a high level. Um, but I did want a dog. Um, I didn't really know what kind of dog I wanted and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with it. But at the time, I was living in the dormitories in the summer at Oregon State University, and I was, a, I was a dorm mom. So I basically would check in all the wrestling camp kids and give them their towels and uh, make sure they weren't trashing the place and stuff like that. Um, but really, most of the day, I could just sit in the caregiver's apartment and watch cable, which was pretty awesome because I didn't have cable when I grew up. So that was cool. And there was a show on Animal Planet called Breed All About It. Oh, yes. We've talked about that show. (laughs) Yeah. 
So the episode that hooked me was an episode that highlighted the Australian shepherd. And there was a lot of agility in that segment. So I thought, all right, I'm going to get myself one of those dogs and I'm going to do that. That is what I'm going to do. So I went to the library and started doing some digging because the internet, I mean, it was kind of a thing, but the library was still my go-to source for information. (laughs) And I checked out a book on Australian shepherds. And I also checked out a book on border collies. And the, of course, the book on border collies basically told me to steer clear and that they were only for advanced owners (laughs) and I shouldn't ever have one. So I went to the shelter um, looking for an Australian shepherd and I ended up with a red and white dog that I thought was an Australian shepherd, but maybe with a tail because I didn't know that border collies came in colors other than black Mm. and white. Mm -hmm. Mm. So my first dog was a border collie and that was kind of how I got into it. And you started in agility pretty, pretty early with that dog, right? Well, I, not really. Um, I wanted to, but at the time there was one instructor in the area and she taught obedience classes. And she also had a doggy daycare that she ran out of a church. It was a really cool setup. She had this church building that she was leasing. And so all the pews were removed from the main congregation room and rubber matting had been put down. So that was where the doggy daycare was. And it was also where the um, obedience classes were. So I went to church every week with my dog. And um, he was pretty terrified of a lot of things. So the first several weeks, we mostly just spent making sure he wasn't going to go to the bathroom when somebody approached. And you couldn't get into agility classes unless you were kind of handpicked by the instructor. Mm. Oh, so I did my homework and, and got to a point where I could do some stuff with this dog. And we were the star of our obedience class at church. And then I got invited to the obedience classes and made myself some stick in the ground weave poles and off we went. So you, so you got finally got invited to the agility classes, you mean? Yeah. I finally got invited to the agility classes. <laughs> and apparently to this day, the instructor still tells people that I was the only student to teach my dog the weave poles in the first session of classes. I don't know if it was six weeks or eight weeks. So I was pretty motivated though. Yeah. <laughs> and so how has your career progressed since that first dog? And by the way, how did you move from school teacher to agility instructor and high level competitor? So when I was a, I was a chemistry major in, uh, at Oregon State University, and I didn't really want to be in a lab setting. It, I enjoyed the experiments, um, but I didn't really think that a research setting was for me. So I actually started doing some teaching as an undergrad, and it helped pay the bills, and um, it was a lot of fun. And then I stayed on for a fifth year to get my master's in science education. And during my science education classes, there were a number of classes that dealt with cognitive development and behaviorism. And I was introduced to BF Skinner and a lot of that stuff. Well, at the same time, I was taking my dog to church and learning how to do clicker training. And so I thought that was pretty cool. Of course, as a school teacher, they didn't really, they wanted us to help kids learn how to think. And at the time I was like, I I don't really care how they think. I just wanted to, you know, can I just use a clicker? Basically, I don't, I don't really want to be inside their minds. They're high school kids. Why would I want to do that? That's a scary place. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I've kind of come full circle because of course I, now I think it's pretty important not just to teach our dogs the behaviors, but also to, you know, help their cognitive development from a young age. So I became a chemistry teacher and I taught, uh, I was doing agility all those years. And then I started teaching classes after school, a couple nights a week. And then it 
kind of got to the point where agility was all I was thinking about during school. And I realized that there were a lot of teachers who were teaching their classes and then they were staying after to be really involved in every aspect of the kids' lives. And I really enjoyed teaching, but I didn't really want to make it my whole life. I didn't think about it at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about dog agility. So I got the opportunity in 2007. It kind of all happened at once. I, um, I had another dog at the time and we got pretty competitive. And in March of 2007, we won AKC nationals. And then not too long after that in May, we made the 2007 AKC world team, which was my first year on the world team. And I also had a friend who worked in Washington and owned a veterinary hospital and a big training facility. And she provided me the opportunity to make the jump from school teacher to dog instructor. So I wasn't just teaching agility classes at the facility. I was teaching agility classes. I was teaching puppy classes. I was teaching obedience classes. I was developing curriculum for all the classes from puppy training up through competition agility. And then I was also doing board and train because there was a kennel there at the veterinary hospital. So I was doing a bunch of board and train, doing private consultations with people who needed some help with their pet that was dragging them down the street. So it really was a whole, and you know, I was also um, doing budgets for the business and facility maintenance for the business. So I really was kind of doing everything from scooping poop to teaching classes while I was training my own dogs and working on being a better and better competitor. So that, that was kind of my break from being a high school teacher. It was really an amazing opportunity. And then from there, I went full-time as a solopreneur. (laughs) When did you, you said it happened kind of at the same time. So when did you make the leap from like local sort of nat sort of local and just national within the U.S. agility to international agility? Was there a shock there? Was agility in the U.S. and internationally the same at, at that time? And has that evolved sort of, can you talk a little bit about all that. (laughs) That was my very well-formed question. I know you're all impressed. (laughs) When I started, I started Agility in 1999 with the dog that I had rescued from the shelter. And pretty quickly, it, it was clear pretty quickly that he was not as interested in it as I was. So I got another dog. As we all do. Story of our lives. I got another dog. And I got pretty competitive with that dog. His name was Fly. He was half Aussie, half Border Collie. And he was pretty fun. He was pretty fun. He didn't have any impulse control or anything, but we didn't really need too much of that at the time. I wasn't, I'm not sure I was really aware of the international scene until mm, 2001, maybe. That was a long time ago. So my mind is kind of fuzzy, but (laughs) it took a couple of years for me to really get aware of, wow, this is a thing. Mm-hmm. And there's a big show, there's a big American Kennel Club show that happened or that, that used to happen historically in January at a big convention center in the area. And there would be confirmation and obedience and also some agility. And there was a class that was held at that show every year called the International Sweepstakes class. And it was a tryouts qualifier for AKC World Team tryouts, which again, I really didn't know much about at the time. But way back then, there weren't any there weren't really that many big opportunities like that. So people would show up from all over the country oh. at this thing. Is this Rose City? Yeah, it was Rose City. Linda Mecklenburg came out from Ohio. People would come out from the East Coast. And I mean, at the time it was, the surface was indoor outdoor carpet. 
like a mill that millimeter stuff thick <laughs> fake grass sitting so, on concrete there was no padding there were posts in the ring it was kind of a sideshow at the time it, it, but the people who were serious about it were coming from all over the place because the of the opportunity yeah because of the opportunity so i got kind of aware of it and i thought well this is kind of cool maybe i'll do that and then i discovered that i couldn't with my mixed breed because the the fci world championships at the time and still are for purebred dogs only, although that may change at some point in the future. So I got pretty interested in that and I kept competing with my mixed breed, but I got a border collie puppy with a pedigree and, and then off we went. At the time, the difference between international agility and domestic agility in 2007, when, by the time I made the team, it wasn't that different. The courses were bigger, so you had to run more for sure, but there weren't a ton of skills required that you couldn't also apply to a domestic course. Gotcha. So if you did AKC and you also did USDA, one of the big American organizations, you were pretty well set in terms of skills. It wasn't until it was probably 2010, things were a little different. There was more running. The courses were a little bit more technical. There still weren't really backsides or anything like that. But by the time, I can't remember if it was 2011 or 2012, but right around in that time, we were starting to see these things that were like, well, what is this backwards jump? How are we supposed to deal with this? I, right. I don't like what, what? Then they started to become called backsides and then they were everywhere. Right. So it was around, I would say somewhere between 2010 and 2012, things really started to diverge quite a bit and they really took off and started changing pretty rapidly overseas. And they, they just haven't changed at the same rate in the United States with respect to course design and the way the challenges are presented. Yeah. Can you expand on that a little bit in terms of if we're in agility, we kind of know the differences, but our audience in theory is not agility people. So they don't know a ton about the sport. Can you talk a little bit about the types of training challenges that are different between what you would need to know in agility if you're doing it locally in the States versus if you were going to try to compete overseas? Sure. <clears throat> there are some things that are in common. So for example, it's really nice if you have a, a good sit-stay, the kind of sit-stay where your dog is, is pretty aroused and pretty excited, but still has some self-control and waits until you release them. It's nice if your dog can walk on a leash. So those things are common wherever you go. You're going to want to have a dog that can walk on leash, a nice sit-stay, a dog that has a good recall, a dog that can focus on you, a dog that's interested in playing with toys with you, and a dog that's interested in, in taking food for treats. So there's a lot in common there and that's not real sexy stuff, but it's definitely important stuff. And the obedience stuff that you should do with your dog that's common to both of them is not, you're not trying to cow the dog into trudging along on a loose leash or sitting like Homer Simpson in a sit stay looking <laughs> like they could just sit there forever. It's you, you really want them to be super ready, pretty aroused, but also still have that self-control. When you start getting to the higher levels, and certainly when you go overseas, that becomes even more important because typically for the local shows, the atmosphere is just not nearly as electric as it is at a regional event or even at a national event. So folks that are going to AKC Nationals a little bit later this month who have never been before, it's going to be a little different this year for people, I think, because there are no spectators allowed but it's still, the atmosphere is still likely to be a little bit more charged up. There, people feel like it's a little more important. And so it's going to be really important that their dogs know how to stay on the end of a contact zone 
to meet criteria with a sit stay, to follow the handler, even when they're, everybody's really excited, that kind of stuff. When you start talking about the skills required to be successful on a, a course overseas versus a course domestically, the courses overseas, there's a lot more running required. The courses are usually a lot bigger. So a typical course in the United States is more or less, it varies some, but more or less a one by one ratio. So 80 by 80, 100 by 100. When you get overseas, the dimensions are typically two by one. So 100 by 200, 80 by 160, 70 by 140, those sorts of things. So there's a lot more running than happens on a rectangular course versus a square course. And there are a lot more uh, discrimination challenges. So for example, take the front side of a jump or the back side of a jump. In situations where the, the handler can't really rely on physical cues to get the job done. So there's some more and more verbal training that seems to be required. Well, right. Cause the courses are bigger and they make it so that you, you have to run more, but you also still can't get there to show your dog how to do it with physical cues. So like they're really, they're, they're that much. Right. Bigger, there, not there's bigger. definitely more independence required. You, yeah. Your dog has to be able to do things without you being right there to spoon feed it to them. Um, it really helps if they, can go away from you to do things reliably. If you can point them towards an obstacle and say, here, go take this. And I'm going to go in the opposite direction and have them sort of stay on the task. Um, and again, it's not, it's not like it's um, completely oranges and apples, but it's in general, when we're talking about international versus domestic, it's more, mm -hmm. more arousing, more distance, more skill. That is just more. And generally speaking, I think so. I think that's a good point, though. The equipment's all the same. So all the differences that we're talking about are like in the way things are arranged or in the way that a dog needs to approach or take the obstacle. So what we would say a backside, um, I, I think I like the way you refer to it in your course, Daisy, that it's a landing side approach. So as the dog is running towards the obstacle, what you would think of as the front side or the normal side they would take it, they have to know to scooch around to the back and, and hook around and take the jump. So we don't see that as much in uh, domestic courses, but it's very, very common internationally. So it's still just a jump. It's not that the equipment is completely different overseas, but the way that things are laid out require very different skills. Right. I would say in general, there's probably, it's more physically demanding for the dog and the handler. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think you also see some um, gender differences in terms of the handlers too. It seems like in Europe, there's a lot more men who compete in the sport than we tend to see around here. Well, try not to get too, try not to put, read too much into that because typically what we see of the sport in the United States is the higher level stuff. So most of us are not seeing local shows overseas. And there are plenty of older people overseas doing agility. There are plenty of out of shape people doing agility. There are plenty of um, very pregnant people doing agility. There are kids doing agility. There are people that do agility overseas in wheelchairs and scooters. They've got a pretty big competition every year overseas that it moves around Europe. It's, I think it's called IMCA. I can't remember what it stands for, but there's always a, um, it's a competition geared towards people who are in wheelchairs or scooters or crutches, or oh, that's maybe cool. they're blind or they're deaf. Um, so you can't, 
you know, it'd be like looking at the Olympics and, and if you're, you know, if you're watching Olympic figure skating, you wouldn't just think, oh, every figure skater must look like that. Mm, no, <laughs> That's right. Fair. That's just right. the top of the, the cream of the crop. So if you're looking at European open or, um, world championships or world agility open, you're looking at the cream of the crop. So it's not necessarily representative of the entire population overseas, but there's more training required for sure. If you're not physically capable of being right next to your dog, then you will absolutely have to have some training to compensate. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's true in the U.S. It's something that we still hear sort of regularly around the ring. I'm often told like, oh, well, of course you can get there, handle that. You're young and fit. That's not the only way to handle a course. You can absolutely handle a course with your dog at a wide distance with you not doing a lot of moving. I think the the venue of NADAC has like they've taken that kind of to the extreme. I always say it is so cool to watch. It's very impressive that dogs are under sort of that kind of verbal and limited physical control, the limited physical cues you can give without moving too much. And it's also not the particular type of agility agility that I'm interested in. There is absolutely nothing wrong with doing agility that way. It is just my own personal preference that I want to run around. I That was part of why I got involved in agility, because it looked like fun for me too, because I got to go out and do a thing. So I, I think it's important to the point that you bring up, Daisy, that there are a lot of different ways that agility can look depending on your skills and abilities as a handler. But just like lots of types of dogs can do agility, it's not just border collies. Lots of types of people can do agility. It just, you have to work with your own unique skill set and figure out how to how to make that shine and get it to take you where you want it to go. You're just going to have to use a few different techniques to get there. Sure. So to shift gears a little bit, will you talk about how you pick a puppy? So when I was looking for Sprite, because I knew that I wanted to do more international style agility with her, I felt a whole lot more pressure to, I'm doing air quotes, find the right dog for the job because you those dogs are doing a lot of things independently. They're very driven and they're, and they're fast. Um, so when you are looking for a puppy, what are you looking for? Well, so first off, most of the dogs I have, I did not pick. I picked a litter, but I didn't mm-hmm. pick the puppy. And usually by the time I have found a litter that I like, any puppy will do mm-hmm. for, for the most part. I mean, if they all had a good start and they all seem reasonably well-built um, and their parents are nice, you know, I mean, I've invested enough to get that far beyond the gender that I might prefer. There's not really a lot that I'm going to care too much about. In my personal experience, I've had better luck. If I have some input, I've had better luck with dogs that I pick based on the way they make me feel. So if they're cute or I just have some sort of affinity for them, then I'm likely to want that puppy out of the litter. So if I'm looking at pictures of the litter and I think, oh, that one's cute. Look how cute it is. It's got a cute little marking. That's probably the one that I'm going to gravitate towards. So it's not a real scientific way to pick a puppy. But again, if I'm already committed to the litter, then I'm pretty confident that most of them are going to turn out all right. Yeah. I'm probably not going to be real drawn to the one that's off in the corner by itself anyways. Right. Um, (laughs) Wait, that was Sprite. She was the one off 
on an adventure all by herself. Oh no, what have yeah. I done? <laughs> well, I didn't I didn't pick Solar. He was picked for me. I didn't pick Juno. She was picked for me. Frodo was not really my puppy. When I had him, he belonged to a friend who imported him for her kennel and I volunteered to train him. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And then he he turned out to be Monarchid, so he was neutered and signed over to me. And also he turned out to be Frodo, so <laughs> Maybe, maybe not great. He's for a, a bit goofy. Frodo, as we call him. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was that's a good point, though. I uh, so when I picked my most recent puppy, um, I knew I wanted a girl, and there were three to choose from, and I knew I wanted a smooth coat, and only two of the three were smooth. And I also could have gone out there at six weeks to potentially pick which one I wanted, or just go out there at eight weeks. And I asked one of the. Um, fairly well-known behavior type trainers, if I should bother going out there at six weeks. And she said, nope, I wouldn't. She said, if if you like the parents and you like the litter, it's not really going to matter which one you pick because there's not enough information about them at eight weeks to tell you that anyway. Yeah. So pick the one you like. If it yeah. runs away from you when you get there, you probably shouldn't bring it home, but otherwise go yeah. for it. <laughs> yeah. And I, I have had more success with that than than with the puppies that I have gotten for more pragmatic reasons. And so I, I think I, I keep trying to relearn that lesson, but essentially if I think it's cute and I feel like, you know, I will still like this dog, even if it pees in the house or poops in the house <laughs> or doesn't come to me when I call it, then, then I'm probably going to be more willing to do the work that's required. I'm going to be more willing to invest as much effort as is required to bring out the best in that puppy. That's fair. That's such a good point. Like, do I, if I like you, I'm a lot more willing to deal with some inconveniences or setbacks or other things that might happen than if I picked you because you were the dog I was supposed to get that I should get that should be the right dog. And then all of a sudden there's a challenge that I wasn't anticipating because you were supposed to be the perfect dog for me. And now I'm frustrated. I, I think that's honestly, really, really excellent advice for, for folks. Mm -hmm. And so what do you teach your puppies right out of the gate? What do I teach my puppies right out of the gate? Yep. Um, oh man, you think I would remember, <laughs> um, crate games, crate mm -hmm. games are pretty important right off the bat. Um, it's your choice games where they learn not to maul my hand when I've got food in it. And, then little tricks that are age appropriate for puppies. I usually, I start teaching them to pick up and retrieve an object pretty quickly. I'll start working on toy play and the, the rules of toy play, meaning get it, bring it, give it, switch to another toy, switch from toy to food. Um, and of course that's all in the context of it's just a fun game. If it's a real keen little puppy, I'll start branching out from there with some other tricks, but a lot of them are thinking tricks. There's not too much that I'm going to do to push a puppy physically at that age beyond what they're capable of. And again, it kind of depends if it's a boy puppy, they're usually a little bit less coordinated than the girls. So sometimes you can start on that stuff a little bit earlier with girls and boys, but, but I'm still mostly going to work on tricks, things that help our relationship. Um, simple stuff. Like when I pick you up, I'm not going to let you go till you kiss my cheek and then I'll put you down. Mm -hmm. You know, struggling doesn't get you what you want, that kind of stuff. Learn what your name means. <laughs> That's a, you know, cookies. That's a good one. That's a good I realized one. when Ale was like five months old that I've been calling her Pup Pup the whole time and she didn't actually know her name. So yeah. having to make yeah. up for that a little bit. 
so you've always got pup up. I know, and it works quite well. And funny enough, the other ones come to that too. So yeah. Uh, so then, if you're starting out in agility, you haven't done before. Do you think it's possible for people to make it onto a national or international stage if maybe they're not starting with a, a puppy? They're starting with their pet dog that they've decided might be good at agility. Do you think that that's a realistic thing to think? It depends. It kind of depends on where they're coming from. If you have somebody with a dog who's two or three and that person has always been into training the dog and, and doing stupid pet tricks and they come to you and they say, Hey, look, my dog knows left and right. And my dog knows sitting down and they know all these neat tricks. It's not a stretch to think that they, and, and also maybe that person has a background in sports, team sports. Um, so it's not a stretch to think that that person could absolutely make it to the international stage because they've got all the pieces. They've, they've got a real interest in training. They are used to watching their dog carefully and they've got a good reinforcement structure because they've been doing all that trick training and hanging out with the dog. They've got a history of playing team sports. So they've got pretty good spatial awareness. They've got a competitive streak. They know how to have some mental toughness under pressure. So if they've got those pieces, they don't need to come from the same place all the time. If they have those pieces, then sure, absolutely. They yeah. find a good instructor, right. they're in a competitive area. So there are a lot of things that if the opportunities are there, then sure, they could make it with a, a dog that's not a puppy, but still not quite a fully grown adult. I think that's super interesting because those thinking about some of the things that it takes to make it at the higher levels, are it's not just about the dog training. There's a there's a huge mental component to it. And I know, I mean, there are competitors that really struggle to just remember the course at a local show because they're so nervous. And so sort of any of those like stage fright type things can all certainly happen when you go to a, you know, national level competition. That can be something that people find really hard to overcome. Or even if you're in a USDAA, there's something called steeplechase. It's all about a sort of fast flowing courses and there are two rounds. And so or there can be two rounds in the final. They're reverse seated. It can be like super fun, jazzy environment. And some people, it, that's really a lot for them. And so that it's interesting to think about that particular skill set as being something that is a little bit of a make or break. If you come with that, if you've been in, you know, high level sports competitions, maybe that's, it's not a hurdle that you're going to have to overcome. And there are certainly plenty of people that fall into that. But for folks who've never sort of competed ever, that might take a little bit more doing in their career. Yeah, I um, finally, now that I'm on what my fourth agility dog or whatever, um, <laughs> have come to the conclusion that the hard parts of the sport isn't necessarily the obstacles. The hard part is the relationship and those, those basics. It's the impulse control. It's the focus. It's how you get between the obstacles. That's actually the challenging part. It's not really the obstacles themselves. Well, that's part of it. <laughs> it's, it's part of it. Don't forget the obstacles. I feel like that part is easy compared to all the rest of it. Well, right. I mean, there's if if you really want to, you can get your dog over all the obstacles. And apparently, Daisy threw the weave poles in six weeks. Um, I never would have expected. <laughs> 
to get a dog uh, trained to do six straight weave pulls in six weeks, but apparently it can be done. So in that sense. Well, I mean, don't don't get too impressed by it. I'm sure that we didn't have any fancy entries or anything like that. I probably just had a dog that would gravitate toward them, you know, which at the time was probably more than most. Did you lure it? <laughs> probably. I, I, I think I, if I recall correctly, I know they were orange. So I had some PVC, they somehow I, I think I'd like, I put some caps on the bottom and drove nails through so you could stick them in the ground. Mm-hmm. And then I had some of that plastic coated clothesline wire mm-hmm. that I rigged up to be wires on the poles. So the dog didn't really have any choice. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's possible that I showed up with my contraption of wires and poles and said, here, look what my dog can do. And that counted as... <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done it. Well, and it does seem like current training methods, you certainly can pretty easily teach a dog how to weave pretty reliably in six weeks, but you have to, you kind of have to know how to do that. To you can, but they, those weren't, those weren't things that we really thought about at the time. Yeah. Okay. So in general, what advice would you give to new people who are interested in joining the sport with the intention of eventually competing at the highest levels? I would suggest that they find somebody who's been there or ha- who has a high awareness of what those what the sport is like at those levels. There are some folks out there who are very good competitors. They're very good trainers. They just really have no interest in going to the tryouts events. They have no interest in putting their dog on a plane. And so you'll never see them at those big events, but they are they may be very well suited to help you get there. But in general, I think if you, if you're interested in getting to that level, you should find someone who's been there or someone who's had some students who have been there. And I would also, there's a lot of information that's readily available to competitors these days. So I, I'm not sure that that's a good thing always to have that much information available. It can be hard to sift through what's good quality information and what seems like good information because there's some clever marketing behind it. Mm-hmm. And there are some instructors out there who are very good at what they do and who have been to all the big competitions and they've been around and have watched the sport changed who are just not very good marketers. So right. you're, you may not know that much about them, um, but you'll find them if you're interested, you know, start digging around, find out who's been on the team for a while, been, figure out who's been on the team with multiple dogs, maybe not just one dog, um, figure out who has coached other students to being on the team um, or teams, whichever team it is you're interested in. And also when it comes time to doing the work yourself, take your time and cover the basics, the foundation stuff, you know, get really good, a really good retrieve, for example, which seems like such a basic, small, and maybe unnecessary thing. But if you have 10 minutes to train your dog, and you would really like to do the weave poles 10 times in those 10 minutes, if you have to spend even half of that time getting your dog to bring the toy back, that's going to really limit your progress. Yep. Mm-hmm. So pay attention when your instructor gives information that doesn't seem sexy or flashy mm-hmm. and really pay attention to the stuff that seems fundamental that might not draw attention to itself. Because that's usually the important stuff. That reminds me. So I went to a Desiree Snellman seminar and I I went to the seminar hoping 
to she I, I think she's a fantastic competitor and um I, I love watching her how she handles her dogs and I was really hoping to get some good handling advice because I was struggling with fractal he was super super fast and we I think we took the intermediate level seminar and she ended up spending most of the time talking to me about the fact that our contacts were really weak and I walked away from that seminar kind of frustrated. And lo and behold, like a year later, I've been working on all this handling stuff. And guess what? Our contacts were really weak. And we spent (laughs) a like, and so we got all, I sort of had solved this off course issue and was able to stay on course with him, but it didn't matter because he would still miss an A-frame or miss a dog walk contact. And so, gee, guess what? She was completely right, and I should have just listened and focused on the more fundamental skill early on and worried less about all the fancy stuff because (laughs) that came with time. But I could have still been working on his running A-frame and making sure I was maintaining criteria on the stop contact. Daisy got to deal with us trying to come back from our untrained running dog walk experiment that went horribly, <laughs> horribly wrong. So it's it's a very uh, well-taken point because, you know, I, I learned that one the hard way. So you don't, yeah. all of you listening, you don't have to learn that one the hard way. When your instructor tells you things that you think are boring, you should work on that. Do it anyway. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, if you, anyway. if you have the opportunity and a seminar presenter is coming to town, don't be discouraged if you can't get into the high level group because you right. may well, I mean, you may want to show off in front of other people in that group, but you may be better off being in a, a novice or a foundation group. Um, you know, especially if that's the only place you can get a spot in, then you should grab it because you, you may really get some good tips and information that can, that can help the rest of your training. A lot of the times, if you address or pay attention to foundation stuff, that stuff, when you pay attention to it can have ripple out effects on the rest of your training in the way that addressing things from the top down, just, it just doesn't work the same. Yep. So don't be, don't be too proud to take the low road with that stuff and say, well, I don't need to be in that master's high level group. I'm going to go for the novice group. I might ace most of the exercises, but I bet you I'll get something out of it. That's probably pretty important. Actually, I think the biggest light bulb moments I've had with Jet have been when I've done a lower level seminar that I really, he was competing in theory at a higher level, but but that was the only spot that was open. And I've actually gotten some of the best advice and most helpful tips by revisiting the foundation stuff. And with, with my newest puppy, she's getting a way better foundation because I know more about it. And because I know how important it is, I'm actually finding it fun where I didn't necessarily think that with my previous dogs now, because I understand it and how it will help me down the road. I actually find that I'm really enjoying it a lot, teaching all those foundation behaviors. And she's way more pleasant to train because she'll, for instance, actually drop the toy on command. (laughs) And that is really nice to have when you've had a dog who doesn't want to drop the toy. So yeah, super important. Well, awesome. Daisy, thank you so much for joining us today. We know there are several places to find you if people are interested in learning more about your training and online course offerings. So tell us where people can find you. People can find me on Facebook. Also, they can find pretty much all that I have to offer is available at www.daisypeel.com. You can get to a little bit more information about me at daisypeel.com. You can get to the online classroom that I have from daisypeel.com. And you can also find me 
my main program these days is the Agility Challenge, and that is at www.theagilitychallenge.com. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. We will post the links to your website and the Agility Challenge, of course, on our website on the show notes um, so that everybody has access to those. And thank you again for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. So that's all for today's episode. Don't forget to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast so you can join us for our next episode. In the meantime, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or by visiting our website at www.caninehijinks.com. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to go out and have some fun with your dogs. Talk to you next time.